This is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you the stories of our men and women in uniform. And now Jesse brings us the story of a nonprofit organization that puts guitars into the hands of war veterans. Thousands of war veterans are afflicted with PTSD. More soldiers have committed suicide since the Vietnam War than have died in actual battle. 22 veterans commit suicide every day, but a lot of them are finding some hope by playing the guitar. It's pretty simple. It's a program called Guitars for Vets, and it helps provide the guitars and free lessons. Check this out. Alpha Delta Echo. And E for Echo. We're a, a, a nonprofit. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. We were started 10 years ago, and we give guitar lessons to veterans. And we have found over the course of the 10 years that if you have problems, if, you, if you're having issues coping, or if, if life just becomes stressful, playing the guitar helps. Teachers donate their time, and uh, companies donate the uh, guitars and you know tuners and whatever, what have you, and. Uh, it's good therapy, if nothing else. It's good therapy for uh, post-traumatic stress, for therapy for anything that ails you. I don't know how many of you are musicians or how many of you play, but those that do will understand what I'm talking about when I say you can pick up a guitar and start playing, and the next thing you know, two hours is gone. And it's like, where did that go? Well, you're at peace for those two hours. You're having a good time, your mind quiets down, and things just become okay. And this is how it helps veterans with PTSD. It helps quiet them down and it helps them feel good about themselves and have a positive experience. Started coming to the VA. I come here for about 10 years and then I found out about the recreation program and that they offer guitar lessons. So I took them, I took the 10, 10 lessons. I think it was one of the best things I did. It's very good for me. The guitar helps you even if all you're doing is plucking the strings. It helps bring out whatever it is emotionally that you're trying to relax out of you. For me, I enjoy the company myself. It's a very good group of guys. I mean, I mean, these guys, these guys know what they're doing. Some of our better instructors have been minimalist guitar players. They may be the first position chords or whatever, but they're so good teaching people, and they they you, you, they can guide people through it, and they can make them feel like it's a success. The program is supposed to be a positive learning experience for everybody, so you don't want to make anybody feel like they failed or they're not keeping up with the program. It's just it's supposed to be enjoyable. It's supposed to be fun. And the, that's really what you need from an instructor is the ability to communicate that and be patient and empathetic with what the veterans are going through. It's a difficult thing for to find an instructor who has the flexibility to teach somebody who have who doesn't have any vision and figure out a way to show me how to play a guitar and I will say it was a uh, it was a good experience for both of us it made him a better teacher and it also made me a better student he was trying to teach me how to finger pick so I enjoyed it I could listen to him all day just finger pick on their music, so it's good. Are you a pretty good finger picker now? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not an easy thing to do. And 
but I still try. When I'm home, I try. It seems to me that the, the, the instrument tells you what type of music you're going to play. So I ended up, when I was taking piano lessons and playing piano, I would play love songs. I thought it would be the same that my guitar, I would learn how to play love songs on the guitar. But that's not true. The guitar said, you're going to play the blues. So I ended up playing the blues with the guitar. It just helps you calm down and de-stress. And it is, it's the best de-stressor I know of. And believe me, I, I, I use it at home all the time. But I would say you've got nothing to lose by doing it. It's, it's just, it's, it's a great program. And, and we know it helps. We know it can help you. So, you know. All non-judgmental. Come in and enjoy. Now, Guitars for Vets has fulfilled over 25,000 lessons and distributed over 2,500 guitars for free to military veterans. If you want to help out by donating $200, you can send one veteran through the program. That's guitarsforvets.org, and this is Our American Stories. And again, that's guitarsforvets.org. And by the way, this could just be something that you should think about for yourself or your family. Uh, an instrument, playing it, what it can do for you. That's why we spend so much time on music here on this show, and we spend a lot of time on vets. Jesse's really good at bringing disparate things that we care about together. I know another program that's uh, dealing with equestrians for vets up in Memphis. My little girl does that, and teaches vets how to ride, gets them at peace. And that's what we're all looking for in the end, is that inner peace. It's half of why we do this show here in Our American Stories. No screaming, no yelling. We've heard from so many of you uh, the thanks that you get for our tone, for the way we carry ourselves. Uh, And in this day and age, it's just hard to come across things that put you at peace. And so thanks again, Jesse, for finding this. Pick up a guitar one day. Go get an old used piano. Just start playing it. Just start strumming it. Just start tickling the keyboards. I like to do nothing better at my home. This is Our American Stories, Guitar for Vets. And by the way, this shows what so many people here do with their free time in this country. And as they give of their time, it's not always their money they can give, but my goodness, we can give of our time. Guitarsforvets.org, their story, these soldiers' stories who've been helped and healed by this ministry. And it is a ministry here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here on Our American Stories, and we're about to hear from one of the last Navajo code talkers of World War II. Roy Hawthorne passed away in 2018 at the age of 92, but he left behind an incredible account of his story for all of us to hear. Hawthorne was a mere 17 when he enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps and became part of a famed group of Native Americans who encoded hundreds of messages in Navajo to keep them safe from the Japanese. He served in the 1st Marine Division in the Pacific Theater. My name is Roy Hawthorne. Uh, my Indian name is uh, Kintlachit Inez, but uh, uh, Indian names are not used uh, very much, uh, very seldomly, seldom used. English is uh, more convenient. My date of birth was February 13th, 1926. I was born uh, in the, we call it a hamlet, I call it a hamlet, of uh, Ganado, Ganado, Arizona, which is uh, about... Um, 40, 50 miles northwest of where we are now. I have lived here in this area since uh, probably I was about four years old. Of my six brothers, uh, I think all of us served in the military at one time or another. There were three of us that uh, served as Navajo code talkers. It was uh, classified and we couldn't talk about it for 26 years after the war ended. And, and so we never, we never talked to each other about that. Uh, we just assumed that the, that's what he did also. Uh, but we never, we never did discuss it. Uh, never, never talked to our parents about it. Never talked to anybody about it. Uh, it was just something we just didn't talk about because that's what uh, the order was. My mother's name was Desba, D-E-S-B-A-H. It's a, it's a common uh, Navajo name for a girl, Desba. And uh, my father's name was uh, Orville. That's my middle name. His name was Beezehi. Some people that I've talked to have said that that means uh, handsome. I enlisted uh, in uh, 1943 in June. I was uh, 17 at that time. Several of my brothers had already gone either to the Army, already gone into the Marine Corps. And I, I enlisted because uh, that was the thing to do in, in, in that day. I had been reading um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which was uh, very captivating, very fascinating. And uh, I wanted to be a, a submariner. Uh, but when I got to the induction station, I was informed that the federal government uh, had passed... Um, legislation which required all Navajo males from that point until the uh, duration of the war be enlisted uh, or inducted into the Marine Corps. Very early on when you're dealing with military things you learn that you don't ask uh, why and so I didn't ask why. It wouldn't have uh, done any good if I did ask why because uh, the why part was kept a secret. I mean it was it was uh, it was classified never knew why until after boot camp and I was assigned to um, Camp Pendleton in California and uh, the Navajo uh, Communication School. And then nobody had to tell me why because that's what we were doing. It was just uh, another day at the war. We were not only uh, working with uh, the Navajo language, 
as as a military code, but uh, we were learning uh, most all aspects of uh, military communications, like uh, Morse code and semaphore and field wire communications. And when I arrived there, uh, the war was uh, full steam. The replacements were needed all the time, and so I was in Camp Pendleton maybe maybe three months, maybe not quite that long. So you had to learn real fast and retain everything you learned and uh, and, and be ready uh, whenever uh, you got the call that you were uh, going to be shipped out. Uh, we were shipped out back in those days. Today, uh, you're deployed. Now, Guadalcanal was secured by the time I got over there, but we um, went on field training exercises uh, all the time, getting ready for uh, for Okinawa. Of course, we didn't know what we were getting ready for Okinawa, but that's what it was. And we were trained, of course, in using the Navajo code, uh, voice radio, Morse code, and we were also trained uh, as general Marines. So we were trained in uh, mortars, machine guns, and uh, different other different other uh, other weapons. And uh, in Okinawa, we did use the different things like uh, mortars and and. Uh, <clears throat> machine guns and so forth. That wasn't our, our primary job, but if you were needed, then you knew how to how to perform that specific task. They would pick up uh, our transmissions before code talking came came into being, and they were encoded, but they would break the code, and uh, so they they would break it right away, and they would come onto our frequency and say thank you. Uh, we'll be with, be there waiting for you, and they were they were there waiting for us, and so they were they were at that time winning the battles practically on a daily basis. They were winning battles because they could break the code so so quickly, and they knew what we were going to be doing. When the code talker program was established, it turned the whole thing around. The whole picture was turned around. The Japanese could not decode our messages, <clears throat> and as a result. They weren't winning the battles like they, they had been winning the battles. The person I feel is really responsible for uh, uh, for the Navajo language being used as a military code, he was not a Navajo, but he was a son of a missionary couple from the Midwest. They came out here when he was just, uh, just a small boy, and he grew up with uh, Navajo boys and girls as his playmates. Learn the language, learn uh, customs and ways and traditions, all these things. World War I broke out. He served as an engineer with the Army. But he, he had on his mind that uh, this language probably could be used as a code that would be unbreakable. And the Army had experimented with other Native American languages. They were unsuccessful, not because of the language, but because they were not encoded. They tried to use just conversational language. They they didn't uh, code the language, and so they were un unsuccessful. So the military people just uh, were very leery of uh, trying it again when uh, Mr. Johnston came up with this idea. The military was really skeptical that uh, that uh, Indians could do anything, but, but th that wasn't just the military either. I mean, it was a general general population that was skeptical that the uh, Indian could do anything. He was not an underachiever. He was a, a non-achiever. And so when I was inducted into the Marine Corps, 
And I raised my hand and I swore allegiance to the United States of America and I became a Marine. That's when I became somebody. And that's when, when, when the whole world realized that they had made an error and that it wasn't true that Native Americans were non-achievers, that they were achievers. And, and so that's what uh, makes me very, very proud of the fact that uh, we, were, we were chosen to, to do this specific task. The unit I was with was pinned down for at least two days, maybe three days. During that time, I sent a message. Of course, the, the message originated from uh, the commanding officer, which uh, I think was a, a lieutenant. Maybe, he may have been a captain. Gave me the message. He had it written down in English, and uh, I sent it out in, uh, in the Navajo Code. Just a few minutes, a very short time, Marine Corsairs came over and uh, made, made the airstrike and saved the day for us. We had code talkers with every division, at every level of, of, of the division. And then we had code talkers on uh, command ships and on all, all other kind of ships. Uh, I was talking to uh, another code talker a few years ago, and uh, uh, he was telling me of some of his, his experience. Uh, he said, I received this message one day, came from, uh, from a Navajo code talker, and uh, was requesting uh, an airstrike because they had been pinned down by the enemy. I said, well, that was me. You know, that, that I, I'm the one that sent that message. And you're listening to Roy Hawthorne, one of the last Navajo code talkers of World War II. He passed away in 2018, served in the 1st Marine Division in the Pacific Theater. And we're going to hear more of his remarkable story after these commercial messages. By the way, we'd love to hear your stories, any kind of war stories in particular that run in your family, in your community, send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We've had some beauties come in, and we've done them, and they've been some of our favorites. This is Lee Habib. Roy Hawthorne's story continues here on Our American Story. continue here on Our American Stories with Roy Hawthorne's story, and in his own words, and we love to do this here on the show, let's just get out of the way, and you're hearing from Roy, who's passed, but my goodness, he's still with us, as you can tell. We pick up now where we last left off in the South Pacific Theater during World War II on the island of Okinawa. Our commanding officer said, we have to take that hill tonight. Because if we don't, in the morning, they're going to come down and uh, take us. I was assigned to uh, go with that patrol. It, w- it was b- before nightfall. We started out. And we went a certain distance where there was a lot of cover. But then we came to a place where there was no cover at all. There was no trees, uh, no boulders, hardly anything. 
And so when we began crossing that area, uh, the enemy began uh, shelling us. And uh, so we, we couldn't cross without getting all annihilated. So uh, we uh, withdrew. And by the way, uh, Marines uh, never retreat. They might advance in the opposite direction and regroup, but they never retreat. It was decided that we would wait until darkness and then cross that area and have uh, radio silence all night until we got up to the top so the enemy wouldn't know that we were, we were out there. And so that's, that's what we did. We went across that open area. The next morning, just when the uh, day was beginning to break, we came up uh, on uh, top of the uh, top of that mountain or that hill, and uh, we see the Japanese there. They're 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 making breakfast, getting ready for breakfast. Officer in charge uh, gave us the command to begin firing upon them, which we did. But uh, we found out pretty quickly that uh, they had more firepower than we did, and they had more manpower than we did, and uh, that we needed. Uh, we needed uh, reinforcements or, uh, or we would be overrun. The uh, commanding officer, uh, he suggested that uh, uh, get a number of tanks and put as many Marines as you could in each tank, and which was maybe three or four Marines in each tank, and come on up that hill, uh, which is uh, what they did. And so with those men, we were enabled to... Um, to overpower the Japanese and, and take that hill that morning. But uh, there, there again, uh, another instance where uh, the uh, code, Navajo code was used uh, for if the Japanese uh, could have de uh, decoded our message, they would have known exactly what we were going to do. And uh, they would uh, have brought in other means to thwart the tanks from coming, from coming up there. Uh, so they didn't know. And so tanks came up, troops were there, and we annihilated them. Uh, in Korea, the attacks were, uh, they were not going on all the time. They were sporadic. And on these uh, hills, uh, we would have forward observers. My job was to, uh, to keep the field communications intact. Now, one, uh, one morning, early in the morning, probably about 2 o'clock in the morning, there was a great flash of light. Didn't hear a sound. This was a mortar shell that exploded, and it hit me. I was wearing a a flak jacket, so so it didn't penetrate that flak jacket. But it did. It did every place else on my arms and and on my legs. It happened so fast. I didn't know what happened, and it didn't knock me down, but. I began to slowly go down, and when I went down, I knew I knew what happened. I had uh, practically uh, severed my uh, my leg be below the knee on, on my, my, right, my right side, my right leg, pr practically severed it. I had injuries all up and down on my thighs, and when I got to the aid station, five or six miles from uh, where I was wounded, my lieutenant was there. The way I remember it, uh, I could just see blood every place, but. Uh, as as I think about it, I said, well, it probably wasn't all my blood, but others coming in there. But but he was really uh, shaken by by what was what was happening, uh, particularly to me because I was in his unit there, and uh, so 
he said, Sergeant, uh, he said, you're going to be all right. But, but he was crying. He said, he said you're going to be okay. I wasn't thinking whether I was or whether I wasn't. Had the privilege of riding on a MASH helicopter out of there into a MASH hospital unit. Uh, the next thing I remember is being in, in a tent. It seemed to be a very large tent uh, with hardly any light in it at all. And um, um, doctors coming by uh, my bedside, uh, sort of uh, uh, like the bed was here, whatever it was, and they'd, they'd come in and walk uh, kind of a little distance away. And they'd walk by, they would, wouldn't come close, but they'd look over and uh, they'd uh, make little noises like saying, hmm, hmm, something like that. And they'd go on. And then uh, a nurse uh, came, came up behind them and she came over and uh, she took my hand and she said, Chief, you're going to make it, <laughs> you know. And uh, uh, that uh, probably was an encouragement there. I met one of my cousins on Okinawa. We were talking, uh, doing a, a training, a field training with the Navajo Code. And uh, I was talking to this person and uh, asked him about himself. And, and he told me, and that was my cousin. And so I visited him there. He was in a different uh, different division, uh, and we visited. But uh, the thing is that uh, while we were here in 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 our land, uh, it was practically impossible to to go these distances and and visit uh, one another. So we had to wait for the war to come along and uh, and take us a long ways from home, and uh, bring us together in that way. So. Um, so most uh, most of the uh, Navajos, not just the code talkers, but all the Navajos that went into the service, uh, it was their first experience, uh, let me say, beyond the horizon. I was uh, stationed in um, Fort Carson, Colorado, by Colorado Springs. It was uh, where I could request a medical retirement anytime I wanted to, and uh, I did and I was retired, medically retired. The reason that I requested that medical retirement wasn't because I no longer wanted to be in the military. I, I, still, I still was in love with the military. But the, my, the reason was I became a Christian. And uh, after I became a Christian, I felt uh, in my heart uh, God's call to me uh, to be a minister of the gospel. And uh, that's why I requested a uh, medical retirement. And, and so I got that. And, and uh, I'm uh, still a soldier, different uniform, but I'm still a soldier. And you've been listening to Roy Hawthorne, one of the last Navajo code talkers of World War II. And Roy passed away in 2018. We'll be running this story once a year, every year for as long as this show lasts. That's how significant and important a story like this is. To hear the voices of the men who served in World War II, the war that changed the world, and the war in which we sacrificed over 400,000 of our boys, my mom's brother being one of them, in the fields of France. And we can never forget. And if we leave it to our history teachers in our schools, well, we'll spend maybe a half hour on it, and our kids will know nothing. 
about this remarkable war in the most remarkable century in America's history and the role that Navajo Indians played in defending their country. And you heard it. It was their country. And he joined up, strapped up, went into the Marines, and what these men did was save the world. Without these codes, we couldn't have won the war. We could not have won the war. And by the way, that he became a Christian and left the military only, as he put it, to put on a different uniform. Still a soldier, different uniform, serving God rather than simply country. Roy Hawthorne's story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Voices of Main Street segment brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. There's nothing like seeing a small business succeed. And when a small business can save a town, oh my goodness, that's even better. And today we're talking about a family business that did just that. It became an internet sensation, revived a dying hobby, and brought new life to the small town of Hamilton, Missouri. Quilting involves sewing large pieces of fabric together to make a thick and comfortable blanket a hobby that 21 million people nationwide enjoy. Missouri Star Quilt Company started off to stave off boredom and turned into a global quilting sensation. Shadrach, one of our Hillsdale interns, has the details. While driving through the southeastern United States, you might happen upon Hamilton, Missouri, the birthplace of famed department store founder J.C. Penney. Ten years ago, Hamilton was a shrinking small town with little prospects and a crumbling infrastructure. That was until one woman changed everything. Hi, I'm Jenny from the Missouri Star Quilt Company, and I do online tutorials. There are over 300 of them. We are sitting here in our creative room. Uh, In our town here, we have 13 shops. They're all fabric specific. So when you go into a shop, it's gonna have solid fabric or floral fabric or Civil War fabric, and every shop is decorated around it. You can eat here, you can sleep here. It's just a great place to be. That was Jenny Doan, the face of the Missouri Star Quilt Company in Hamilton, Missouri. People describe Hamilton, Missouri as Disney World for quilters. And when you walk those streets, you can't help but believe them. Main Street is lined with cars, quilt shops, restaurants, and people from all over the world and all over the country hoping to meet their favorite YouTube celebrity. Mrs. Doan's online quilting tutorials have been viewed by millions of people all around the world. And every year, thousands of them make the trek to a small town in the middle of rural Missouri to meet her. But Mrs. Doan never set out to be famous. She didn't even start out as a professional quilter. I used to be a costumer. My background is in musical theater. Uh, when you make a costume, it doesn't matter how many months you spend gluing on sequins, 
It's got to look good from 20 feet out, hold together for two weeks, and somebody's going to use it one time, maybe two times. But when you make a quilt, it doesn't matter how beautiful or how old the fabric is or anything like that, but that quilt is going to be cherished for generations. There's longevity to it. The older our quilts are, the more we cherish them, worry about how we're going to take care of them, what are we going to do, how do we get that spot out, all those kinds of things. Even if I make a quilt for you, you don't like it and you give it to the Goodwill, someone's going to go along and go, I can't believe I found this. But how did this all start? How did Mrs. Doan go from making costumes for musicals to the single most famous quilter alive? Turns out, it was a family effort, led by one of her sons, Alan. It was 2008. Market crashed. My kids wanted to, they got worried about what we were going to do because we lost our retirement in the crash. And so um, one day I went to pick up a quilt. Uh, well, Alan said to me, he, you know, he was asking, he says, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to pick up a quilt. He said, what quilt is it? And I said, I don't know. It's been there like a year. And he's like, is that a thing? You know, is there, does it, are people really, are there just that few of them? And I said, no, they're just really backed up because there's a lot of quilters and people like to do it. He said, do you think you could do that? And I said, well, I could try, you know. And so they talked together. You know, long story short, they, they wanted to, uh, they decided to buy me a quilt machine and came to the house, it was too big for our house, so we had to buy a building. The building actually cost less than the machine did. So now we had this little business in this little shop over here, and I practiced on all my tops until I felt comfortable, and we started machine quilting for people. And Alan is a computer guy, so when he, he bought the machine, he started looking at what quilting was doing online, and it had not yet made the jump online, and he came and asked me one day if I wanted to do tutorials online, and I said, sure, what's a tutorial? And he said, well, I want you to teach people to quilt online. And, uh, and I said, how will people even find it? And he said, we're going to put it on YouTube. And I said, isn't that where those crazy teenagers put their videos? And he's like, yes, but it's going to be our center for learning. And I was like, uh, nobody's going to go look on the computer to learn how to do something. You know, I couldn't see it. He insisted it was true. And so we started doing videos online. People started watching. People then called and said, hey, that fabric you used, you know, uh, I really want some of that. And I would say, well, it's mine. It's my fabric. You can't use it, have it, you know. And they'd be like, well, I want some. And I said, the kids, maybe we should think about doing this. And we have over 300 tutorials now. And maybe, you know, I don't know how many over, but I know over. And a new one comes every Friday. Every single Friday, there's a new quilt, a new idea for them. And everything I do is quick and easy. Probably for most people, they're much more visual learners than they realize. And if they can see it, they can do it. So that's basically, in a nutshell, how that all began. Where Mrs. Doan is the face of Missouri Star, Alan is the brains. He helped make the Missouri Star dream a reality. And along the way, he learned the ups and downs of running a small business. When you start, you know, everybody's in the groove of the picture. It's like, we're doing it! We're doing it! It's going to be amazing. You know, it's the same as, like, you, you get married, and, like, your photos on your wedding day are like, this is the best! And then fast forward five years, and it's like, no, we're still really happy, but we know that this, you know, the, you know it doesn't come free. It takes some work. Or we're having a baby! Look, it's right there! And then three years in, you're like, no, we got a baby. And uh, I'm happy. I'm absolutely happy. But this baby, this baby takes some work. You know, the pictures of us in this warehouse five years later are like, you know, we are not the happy, gleeful, you know, 20-year-olds that we were when we started this thing. We are happy. We are happy, but, like, we know that it doesn't come free, right? We, we understand the cost. Through the efforts of Alan and Mrs. Doan, Missouri Star has grown beyond a family business. They employ over 400 people from the surrounding area, spending a large portion of their profits on improvements to local infrastructure. 
They've renovated buildings, opened three restaurants, painted murals, and built sidewalks all out of pocket. Missouri Star spends so much time renovating that they even have their own full-time five-man construction crew. When we were talking to him, Alan explained the joys of growing up alongside the community as their business grew, not just growing as a business. So a lot of the satisfaction I get is over these community members that I, I've known and loved forever and watching them, you know, if they, if, if they leave here today, they go and they say, yeah, I helped this company grow from 50 to 400 employees. Here's what I did. Here's how I, yeah, I ran the warehouse. I know how to do that. So like hire me and I'll come and do it for you, right? Like they're, they're, they've developed a skill that's worth markedly more than what they could have come in with. So that's where a lot of my emotional connection to the, to the local people has come. And the pride that I take in this town. I mean, I'm walking down the street with my wife last night. I'm just like, I love this place. Like, I love that, that there's great food to eat. I love that people come here and smile all day. And that like, you know, we got these beautiful murals up and around. Like, this town is getting way, way better. As we spent the day in Hamilton, Alan's words began to make more and more sense. We walked through quilt store after quilt store, searched for cuts on their custom-made iPad kiosks, were greeted by several enthusiastic employees, and enjoyed burgers served on classy little slabs of wood. Everything seemed less rural Missouri and more big West Coast city. However, a trip to Hamilton cannot be complete without the most important part of the experience, the fans. When we met Mrs. Doan and tried to find a location to interview her, a second would not pass without somebody recognizing her and asking for a picture. It felt like traveling with a movie star, except that movie star was a quilt maker in rural Missouri. While we were waiting to interview Alan, we met a particularly passionate fan. The first thing we noticed was his hat, which was covered in Pokemon pins. My name is Manny Caldera, and I'm from Los Angeles, California, and I am a quilter. I'm an award-winning quilter. And I belong to the Wandering Foot Quilt Guild in Arcadia, California, and I'm the only male in the guild. And I'm third vice president in charge of fundraising and thinking outside the box. And actually, I'm, I'm on a hunt for Jenny. I want to actually meet her before I go back to L.A. Manny had traveled all the way from Los Angeles to meet his quilting hero. This man was so invested in Missouri Star and what the Doves were doing that he traveled nearly 2,000 miles to see it. We asked some employees how far people traveled to visit Hamilton, and the furthest they could remember was Australia. That's halfway across the world to visit the quilting capital of the United States. Mrs. Doan believed that all of this travel was far from a coincidence. So one of the, one of the fun things for me is that um, since we've kind of taken this on, there are a lot of communities that say, why don't you come to our community and do this? And I'm like, you can do this for your community. People our age, my age, um, we are. We have more time, and we drive to see things. My husband and I drove three hours to see the world's largest pecan. It was concrete, but it got us there. Now, um, people drive to see the world's largest ball of string. If everything, if when people got there, it be, it was the center place for string cheese and stringed instruments and stringed art and everything macrame and everything embroidery and yarn was in that town, and that town became the center for string. It would be huge. People would be coming from all over to go there. And I just kind of feel like uh, that's what we've done a little bit here. What people don't realize, there's, you know, there's always people who don't love change. But what they don't realize is there's always change. You're either growing or dying. This was not at all our plan to begin with. The plan was to keep mother and dad out of their basement. 
And now, many years and quilts later, Hamilton, Missouri has more quilt shops than any other town in the United States. What started as a hobby has redefined the quilting business and revitalized a small town. A far cry from trying to keep busy during the recession. And what a great story. Thanks for bringing that to us, Shadrach. And thanks to Hillsdale College for loaning their young, talented people to us for the summer. And what a story, folks. Jenny and her family, 400 employees, one small town changed forever. This is the power of small business to change lives. And, well, we love the folks at Job Creators Network who continually try and improve the lives of small business to fight back regulations and taxes so small business owners can grow their businesses and impact the lives around them. You can learn more about Job Creators Network at DefendMainStreet.com. The Missouri Star Quilt Company story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and a popular men's magazine recently posed one of the most intriguing pop culture questions of all time. Who was cooler, Steve McQueen or James Dean? The magazine's nod went to McQueen. Guess that's why he's been crowned the king of cool. Steve McQueen was basically Ryan Gosling, Brad Pitt, George Clooney, and Johnny Depp all rolled into one. In fact, Dear John's Channing Tatum and The Notebook's Ryan Gosling are currently battling it out to play the undeniably authentic McQueen in Hollywood's yet-to-be-shot biopic. But what the McQueen movies, biographies, and document, but what the McQueen movies, biographies, and documentaries never tell you is what happened when there was no script to read and the cameras stopped rolling. This is Steve McQueen's story. Steve McQueen was the coolest of cool. With searing performances in blockbusters like The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, and Bullet, to his love for fast cars, beautiful women, and life on the edge, he was one of the hottest cultural icons of the 20th century. Steve McQueen was born on March 24, 1930, just five months after the Great Wall Street Crash. Within months, his father abandoned both he and his 19-year-old alcoholic mother, Julian. His mother left Steve at her uncle Claude's farm. Julian remarried an angry and abusive alcoholic, returned for her then 12-year-old son, and moved to Los Angeles. The new stepfather began beating both of them. Steve would spend the rest of his life avoiding his mother and searching for his father. Here's Steve's friend, Hilly Elkins. It was that that underpinning that made what he did so effective because there was a gentle and real core of sensitivity to the man. Uh, there was a little boy always in whatever he did. By the time Steve was 14, he'd become a tough street punk in Los Angeles and was arrested. When a traveling carnival passed through the town, Steve joined for a time, then returned to the streets where he was arrested again. On February 6, 1945, 
Steve was ordered to the Boys Republic in Chino, California, a reform school for juvenile boys with behavioral and emotional problems. During his 18-month stint at the Boys Republic, he adjusted to, and even thrived on, the structure and discipline. But Steve struggled with dyslexia. After the ninth grade, he dropped out of school. He emerged from the Boys Republic with a steel-eyed coolness and detachment, inner rage and a rugged street cred. It was a character forged in his pain, but it would become an archetype that would define the modern movie star many of whom he would never meet. Here's actor Mel Gibson from the documentary Steve McQueen, American Icon. I had so many people I admired in films, and Steve was one of these guys. So I actually studied, you know, how he would move. Interesting. And, and the kinds of things he would do. And I think that he tended to be a kind of a guy who was out there and... and disinhibited in some ways, almost to the point of criminality. There was something about him that was sort of delinquent. At 16 years of age, he became a deckhand on a boat when AWOL worked in a brothel in the Dominican Republic and was arrested for vagrancy and served 30 days on a southern chain gang. At 17, he joined the Marines and served as a tank driver and the mechanic. He saved five fellow Marines from a tank before it sank into the Arctic waters. On the other hand, he destroyed the engine of a tank trying to, quote, make it the fastest tank in the division. The Marines made a man out of me, McQueen later admitted. I learned how to get along with others, and I had a platform to jump off of. Here's McQueen biographer Marshall Terrell. So when Steve McQueen was discharged from the military, he was either going to go to Spain and and learn how to tile set from the great masters, or he was going to become an actor. And the only reason why at the time he decided that he was going to become an actor was because acting had a lot of women. In 1950, at the age of 20, Steve headed to New York City and rented a flat in Greenwich Village. Here again is Marshall Terrell. Steve McQueen's first acting gig was uh, in the Yiddish theater. It turned out he was not a very powerful theater actor, and so he got fired, I think, after the first week. He was perfect for film because film would capture your subtleties. And then if somehow or another, he got into Lee Strasberg's uh, actor's studio. So that, that shows you the raw talent that Steve McQueen had. Here's Steve McQueen. I know that when I was studying in New York, uh, I knew that I couldn't afford to fail because uh, it was the only thing that I knew how to do and and that uh, I didn't know any other trade. Despite some modest success, McQueen was getting nowhere fast until he met a rising Broadway star everyone was talking about. Here's Steve's first wife, Neil Adams McQueen. I was a Broadway baby. My life was all about dancing. I had just come out of... Carnegie Hall. I had been rehearsing for a show called Pajama Game. There he was with a dog, a big dog. He had a German Shepherd with him. And he said, hi, you're pretty. And I said, I didn't know what to say. I just saw those blue eyes, you know. And uh, I said, well, uh, you're pretty too. I don't know. I I suppose it opposites attract, but I guess it was ever a thing of uh, falling in love with a girl at first sight. I guess that was it because, well, I sure had to chase her for a long time. He picked me up on his motorcycle one night, and that was it. Four months later, we were married. 
Neil would always say, well, this is what I see in you. If you give a little of that in your performance, then you will be recognized. And that's where you really see the first of the McQueen persona starting to emerge. McQueen had raw talent, but Neil's unstinting belief in her husband was one of the chief reasons he was finally able to open up and trust someone. So he took it to heart when she told her husband what she thought of his television appearances. I gotta let him do to stand on my two feet, Mr. Preston. They're shaving the hair off of my head and I know it. My mother don't know it. Do you hear me? Here's Neil. Instinctively, I knew that what was showing through was not the man that I knew. I said, what I keep seeing is Brand or Dean, and it's just, you know, it doesn't work. And he realized that what I was talking about was right. So I said, smile a little bit. I know it's, it's a tough thing to do because you're playing a killer, but when you're talking to your mother or something, you've got to be able to show something of you. So he did, and for the first time, then he got fan mail, and he said, yeah, yeah, that's good. And he knew I was on his team. So true, and he was not Brando, and he was not James Dean, the king of cool Steve McQueen, his life story, after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the original score from Bullet, a terrific movie starring Steve McQueen, one of the great car chases in history. And let's return to his life story and Greg Hengler's work. Jack Harris was about to shoot a horror film that was to become a cult classic. The Bob, starring Steve McQueen and a cast of exciting young people. Here's movie critic Ben Makowitz. Now, of course, the the Blob, with its sequels and its cult status, uh, became a rather significant film historically. But, of course, one of the reasons why it's a significant film historically is because it stars Stephen McQueen. Without McQueen, I'm not sure the Blob takes on that stature. There was uh, a silver lining in the Blob for McQueen in that producer, Dick Powell, uh, actually requested a screener of the film. And, um, you know, he was impressed with McQueen's performance. And that led to one of Dead or Alive. On September 6th, 1958, McQueen began starring as the bounty hunter, Josh Randall. Bounty hunter, ain't you? That's right. Here again is Hilly Elkins. Josh Randall was a reactor. That was Steve's greatest talent. I mean, it was body language. It was the face. It was the raised eyebrow, the look across the camera. And the camera loved Steve. He started experimenting with a camera to see what worked and didn't work. And he was very, he was very studious about that. And this man with no uh, literary or artistic background had this incredible animal instinct about himself and about what worked for himself. He drove the directors and the producers nuts. He drove them crazy. If the script didn't work, he threw it out. The result was a killer series. Wanted Dead or Alive lasted three years, and director John Sturgis, who was filming his 1959 film Never So Few, starring Frank Sinatra, had taken notice of Steve McQueen. Sturgis thought McQueen's natural cockiness would be perfect for the part. Here's Hilly. And he was now in the movie business. 
the opportunity for a picture called uh, Magnificent Seven came up, and the rest is history. Second story window. Curtain moved. I'm not in a good position. Let him stick his neck out. The real star of that film supposedly was Yul Brynner, but Steve came off as the real star. Your gun has got you everything you have. Isn't that true? Yeah, sure, everything. After a while, you can call bartenders and faro dealers by their first name. Maybe 200 of them. Rented rooms you live in, 500. Home, none. Wife, none. Kids, none. Not because of his uh, act, his part in the uh, in the film, but just because of his presence. His presence was incredible, and that's when we really knew that he had a really big chance at making it. Here's actor Gary Oldman. You have two people on a screen, and you want to watch this person more than you want to watch that person. You just want to look at Steve McQueen. He walks onto the screen, and he kidnaps you. Here's Steve McQueen's grandson, actor Stephen R. McQueen. Steve McQueen's characters all had very defining qualities. He was the guy that was tough, but without putting it in your face. He was the guy that you don't want to mess with, but you look up to him. And as an actor, yeah, those, those are the parts you want to play. And those are, that's who you want to be. You, know, you watch a movie and there's always that character that you want to be in. He found a way to always be that guy. The characters that you've played on the screen who have been loners, they've been uh, rebellious a little bit, uh, moody. Um, have you interjected your own personality into these characters? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. You are a loner? Yeah. Steve's daughter, Terry, was born in June 1959. Eighteen months later came a son, Chad. Chad. In 1962, director John Sturgis brought Steve a script for a movie called The Great Escape. Steve was not impressed and demanded rewrites for his character. Here's Steve. There's a great deal of compromise involved, you know, uh, in movies, I suppose. And I, I get a bit uh, undone when people try to use me or, uh, or there's compromises or injustice. And uh, I fly off the handle. McQueen said, I want you to assign a writer to me so that I can put my signatures on the film. McQueen gets the rewrites, his character gets enhanced significantly, and uh, oddly, the writer who comes in, Ivan Moffat, who'd been Oscar-nominated, he's responsible for so many of the things in the movie which we now associate with McQueen, which really are the things in the movie that we associate with the movie. In the cooler, with the baseball glove, and the great sound. The The motorcycle chase wasn't even in the original film. And he would not have been a movie star had those things sort of not played out on screen. Now a cinematic rock star, the 33-year-old McQueen set his sights on Hollywood legend Edward G. Robinson. He came with the name Cincinnati. Here's legendary actor Carl Malden. Steve McQueen realized that he had a big challenge when he did Cincinnati Kid. Patsy! This is Eric Stoner, the Cincinnati Kid. Here's acclaimed director, Norman Jewison. That scene where he just looks at him, and you feel the tension right away. I can get the money. I know you can. Robinson, he used to say, I'm gonna gut him. I'm gonna gut him. Give us it. (laughs) 
You're good, kid. But as long as I'm around, you're second best. You might as well learn to live with it. Here again is Gary Oldman. The art of it is to make it look effortless. Steve McQueen made acting look as easy as breathing. One calm evening while McQueen was getting some fresh air, he was approached by fellow actor Robert Vaughn. They had this big party, best in Hollywood, young people are there. I saw Steve out on the veranda looking out toward the ocean. I said to him, when you were back there in Greenwich Village with Neil on the back of your bike, did you ever think you'd wind up like this? There was a long pause and I, he said, what makes you think I'm going to wind up like this? It was a terrifying moment and he didn't even look at me, he just set it out into the air. Something was hovering over him all the time that made him aware that this was transitory, this life that he was living. Here again is Norman Jewison. He had all these stories about his his childhood, and and he was he was a bad kid. I mean, he was a, and he, because he was looking for a father. That's who. And I bring it all down to that. Steve was really looking for his father. McQueen was getting bombarded with scripts. One of them was a film called The Thomas Crown Affair, directed by Norman Jewison. McQueen wasn't interested in the role of a white-collar bank robber, but his wife, Neil, thought it was perfect for her husband and knew just how to spark his interest. One morning, we were having breakfast, and I said, gee, honey, that's too bad, you know, that uh, Norman doesn't want you for um, the crown caper because I think you could do it. And he was eating his French toast, and he sort of stopped. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, Norman wants either Sean Connery or Rock Hudson for this part. I said, it's unfortunate, you know, because you could be, I think, really terrific in it. He said, you got to be kidding me. What do you mean he doesn't want me? I said, he doesn't. He doesn't want you. He's given the script to everybody in Hollywood but you. Here's Jewison. I said, you're not right for it, Steve. My God, this man wears a shirt and tie. He's a, he's a Phi Beta Kappa, graduate of Dartmouth. He says, that's why I want to do it. But maybe that was it. Maybe that's why he did it, because I turned him down. <laughs> McQueen started his own production company, and Bullet became the company's first release. It was 1968, and the idea of playing an unconventional detective appealed to Steve. So did something else. When anyone ever does a top 10 list of car chases on screen, it's always Bullet is number one. The interesting thing is that in the script, it just says really two words, and that is car chase. And in McQueen's head, he knew exactly what he's going to go for. Bullet was released in October 68. The reaction was absolutely through the roof, and the profits were just crazy. And Steve McQueen as Bullet just became an instant icon. This is truly where the Steve McQueen legend really takes off. He had the X Factor in big letters, the X Factor, sex appeal. Here's Steve's second wife, Allie McGraw. Every man I met wanted to be him. Every woman wanted to sleep with him. Every kid wanted to be mentored by him. He just had that extraordinary, charismatic, sort of sexual, but dangerous, but soft underneath, bright, street smart power. The X Factor indeed, and Allie McGraw hit it just right. When we come back, more on the life story 
of Steve McQueen. More on the life of Steve McQueen here on Our American Stories. stories you're listening to cheryl crow's steve mcqueen and we return to greg's story about the king of cool when it came to his children the king of cool had nothing but a warm heart here's daughter terry neil and son chad it was very important to him that my brother and i had a real sense of home you know we were able to go to him and talk to him not just as a father but as a friend When the children were little, when they were first born, he really couldn't relate to them. You know? He just uh, sort of dismissed them until they were able to uh, become little persons. As soon as, as their personality started evolving, then Steve could relate to the little children. He instilled a lot of things in me and my sister that uh, he had learned. I think he, he used to say... Uh, some to the effect that, that I mean, I, I've learned, so now it'll save you the bumps and the bruises. It was very important that we were not raised in the Hollywood, not to put down Beverly Hills, but the Hollywood Beverly Hills lifestyle, you know, of children that had no values. We, um, we were raised with the values that I would hope I can manage to instill in my children. With success and money, Steve McQueen collected cars and motorcycles, and they all found a home in his garage. Car and motorcycle enthusiasts formed McQueen's inner circle of friends, admiring and respecting him not as a Hollywood figure, but as a man after their own macho hearts. Here's Chad. He dug hanging out with guys like that, you know? I mean, he's really, he was in his element. I think for him, doing movies was a battle. You know, it was a, he knew that he had to get his game face on. Motorcycles, he just blended in with the rest of the guys. One of the guys Steve McQueen dug hanging out with was Roger McGrath. And I dug hanging out with Roger too, although I know him as Dr. McGrath. You see, Roger is my former college professor in Southern California, who also happens to be one of the coolest guys I've ever met. So I gave him a call and asked the Pacific Palisades boy to tell me about the first time he met McQueen. He began by telling me about having just seen The Great Escape in the theater right before they met. And here is Steve McQueen. And of course, he was my favorite by far in there, and I think most American guys, because he was the quintessential American, you know, rebellious and defiant and supremely uh, tough and talented, you know, with that just, you know, cocky... uh, attitude and and that certain hard edge to him you know 
and it's something I think we all, you know, deep down in our hearts thought was that was an American, you know, that was the way we should be. And he certainly captured that in The Great Escape. All right, uh, there I was up there on somebody's private road. It was 1964, I was 17 and a, a senior at Palisades, and uh, and I was uh, doing wheel stands, making a lot of noise on my match list over these speed bumps. And all of a sudden I hear this whoop, whoop. And I thought, oh, gee, that's nothing could sound like that except a V12 Ferrari, you know. And so I thought, oh, God, some uh, resident here. Uh, you know, this is all in a split second. I thought, well, yeah, I guess he has a right to be a, a little upset, maybe. And uh, but then on the other hand, I was I was 17, and of course full of it. And so I thought, ah. and then another, and all of a sudden, right next to me is a Ferrari 250 GT Berlinetta. And I look over, expecting to uh, see the driver looking over and giving me the one-finger salute, you know. And then I thought, and then we'd, we'd pull over and, uh, you know, see what happens. And, and instead, I look over there, and it's Steve McQueen. You know, here's Mr. Great Escape. <laughs> and... Uh, He's looking over, and instead of the one's finger salute, he's motioning. He's motioning like, follow me, follow me. And so I did. And uh, I followed him into the garage, into the garage, and he jumped out. He was he was dressed uh, you know, kind of casual, but, but smooth. Maybe he'd been at a meeting in Hollywood. And he said, give me five minutes. And he... Uh, split into the house and I sat there in the garage looking at a couple triumphs of his true to his word five minutes later he comes out and he's wearing Levi's a t-shirt and a sawed-off sweatshirt and he grabs a pair of goggles off a peg on the wall and he said let's ride let's ride <laughs> so off we went you know then in 1970 despite a broken foot from a motorcycle racing accident McQueen would race the grueling 12 hours in Sebring, Florida. McQueen was neck and neck with Mario Andretti in the Ferrari 512S. With an average speed of 113 miles an hour, McQueen would challenge for the lead with his Porsche 908 Spider throughout the 12-hour marathon. In the end, Andretti won crossing the finish line a mere 23 seconds ahead of the second place McQueen. And it must be noted that Andretti had a three-driver team while McQueen only had a two-man team. Then McQueen threw everything into his 1971 auto racing movie Le Mans. With more than 70,000 hours of racing footage, nobody knew what the film's storyline was and it was a critical and box office failure. His production company collapsed. He lost his agent. His 15-year marriage to Neil ended the IRS presented him with a $2 million tax bill, and the finger of blame for all of it was pointing directly at Steve McQueen. It was a long fall from the top, and McQueen hit every step on the way down. And the final crash and burn occurred one night with a guy named Charles Manson and his so-called family. 
Steve McQueen was, was invited to uh, the house of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. And the only reason he didn't was because on his way there, he saw a young girl hitchhiking, picked her up, and off they went. But then when he found out the next morning what happened, completely uh, became unglued. We have a weird homicide. Five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polyansky. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines cut. The bodies had been dead about 12 hours. One officer summed up the murders when he said, in all my years, I have never seen anything like this before. His paranoia had gone through the roof. The ghastly murders convinced McQueen that the deranged hippies and so-called flower children were out to get him. It turned out that McQueen had cause to be spooked. During the Manson family trial, it was revealed that McQueen was on their kill list, along with Frank Sinatra, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, and Tom Jones. Now we all know that Jesus walked on water, but did you know that Chuck Norris can swim on land? In the eyes of a ranger, the unsuspecting stranger had better know the truth of wrong from right. Steve McQueen was so macho that after Chuck saw him in the classic motorcycle documentary On Any Sunday, he had a wish. Here's Chuck Norris. I saw a movie called On Any Sunday. I said, if there's any one actor I'd like to meet, that's the man I'd like to meet. And I'm in my karate school in Sherman Oaks, and I get a call, and my one of my instructors comes to me and says, uh, there's a call from Steve McQueen. I guess you're kidding. And so Steve became one of my private students and trained with me for uh, several years. I did my first film, and after I finished the film, I went and saw it, and I thought, it's the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. And Steve uh, came and saw it, and he said, well, it's not that bad of a film. But let me give you some advice. And when we come back, the last installment of the life of Steve McQueen, here on Our American Stories. Listening to the soundtrack from the Magnificent Seven. And when we last left off, Steve McQueen had just seen one of Chuck Norris's first movies and was about to give him some advice. Here's Chuck. He said, You are verbalizing things on the screen that we have already seen visually. And movies are visual, it's a visual thing. This is another thing. Let your character actors fill in the plot of the movie. And when there's something pertinent, very important to say, then you say it. He said, then the people will remember what you say. He said, that's what you've got to have in your movies. Memorable lines. The great comeback started with the 1972 film, The Getaway, which was the first of three big powerhouse films and performances for McQueen in the 70s. He followed that up with Papillon in 1973, and it was on the set of Papillon where legendary stuntman Stan Barrett, 
the former Golden Gloves champ, motocross racer, and black-belted Air Force veteran, had an unusual talk with his friend Steve McQueen. Here's Stan Barrett from the documentary Steve McQueen, American Icon. He said, have you seen J.N. around? And J.N. Roberts was the best desert racer at the time. He said, well, what do you think? He said, he's really pretty far out there. This religion thing with him. I said, look, Steve, he's off the drugs. He's not doing this and that. I said, he's pretty excited about it. And Steve said, well, you know, I'm, re- I'm religious too. I've gone to church. And I said, Steve, because you go in and out of a barn don't mean you're a cow. Normally that would have zapped somebody else uh, and might have been a put down, but, but Steve wanted to listen a little bit more. Stan basically asked, you know, do you have a relationship with God? That's, that's the key. I told Steve, I think, my story and, uh, you know, how I came to Christ and how to change my life. And he was not offended. He was inquisitive and listened to what I had to say. So, so Stan left McQueen two books, including Mere Christianity. You know, I said, Steve, this ain't no rehearsal, man. You know, you're not getting out of here alive. And I said, you know, you'd better think about it. In 1977, McQueen not only left his second wife, Ally McGraw, but he also left Hollywood, something no Hollywood star had done before. When the offers kept coming, McQueen ripped the mailbox from its post and tossed it into the ocean and told his agent to charge $50,000 just to read a script. Here again is Steve's son, Chad. I think when you get to some sort of stardom like that, you would you say, well, is this all there is to it? I mean, I thought there was more out of life, and I think he was searching for that. At 47, McQueen decided to start a whole new life. At 23, Barbara Minty was the perfect partner. It was almost inevitable, but Steve got interested in airplanes. After moving 60 miles northwest of Los Angeles to Santa Paula, Steve was looking for a flying instructor at the local airport. So he was given the name of Sammy Mason, who um, was a stunt pilot uh, and a test pilot for Lockheed and a very, very, very well-respected man. Here's McQueen's widow, Barbara Minty. I've never seen him really respect somebody so much. I mean, Sammy was everything in his eyes. Steve saw in my dad something, you know, that I just took for granted. You had to respect him. He didn't demand it, but you just wanted to give it to him. Mm -hmm. He recognized in him a a spirit of confidence, a spirit of peace. You know, it's hard to describe, but when you're around him, you, you you just really felt comfortable. He had been looking for father figures all of his life, and, and he definitely found one in Sammy. He was his mentor, um, his hero, his, yeah. his everything. They just became solid, solid friends, and um, they had a family life that I'm pretty sure that Steve had never experienced. And they, they just accepted him, took him into their hearts, took him into their home. And um, Sammy was so solid spiritually. Yeah. He wasn't a preacher. He lived it. And finally, one day, he basically said, what is it about you that's different? I can't quite put my finger on it. And Sammy said, well, Steve, I'm a born-again Christian. He came home one day and he says, honey, put a dress on. We're going to church. And I'm like, 
oh, okay. It came completely, completely out of the blue. It wasn't Sammy asking Steve to come to church. It was Steve asking Sammy if he could come to church with him. My dad told me, he says, you know, Steve asked if he could go to church with me. So I, I thought, well, that's, that'll be a one-time thing. You know, Steve and his wife, Barbara, uh, went to church with Sammy and his wife, Wanda, uh, faithfully every week up in the balcony of the, of the uh, Ventura Missionary Church. Here's then-pastor of Ventura Missionary Church, Leonard DeWitt. After church, I was standing out in the foyer greeting people and uh, felt somebody tap me on the shoulder. And I turned around and uh, he said, uh, Pastor, I'm Steve McQueen. And I said, hi, Steve. He, he just had a bunch of things he wanted to know uh, about the Christian life. And what about the Bible? And yeah. can you really rely on it? And yeah. so forth. His questions were really good. And so after two hours, he sat back and he said, well, that's all of my questions. And I said, Steve, I have one. And he, he grinned. He said, you want to know if I'm born again, don't you? And I said, that's really what's important to me. And so then he said, you remember the Sunday that you invited people who wanted to receive Christ? When you gave that invitation, he said, that's when I accepted Christ. It sort of all clicked that if I could be forgiven, I can start all over again. And, and I can have that inner peace that I wanted for so many decades. Going to church and, and Sammy, I think, helped him a lot. I mean, his whole life just changed. The King of Cool was now doing one of the most rebellious things he had ever done in his life. But about six months after becoming a Christian, several friends began noticing McQueen's unhealthy appearance. Here's what Roger McGrath saw while spending time with Steve at the Santa Paula airport. Oh, and then one day I came home and I, remember I, I told my wife that Steve had kind of let himself go. I think I used the term, oh, he's looking kind of rusty, you know. Um, and then I was out there a couple weeks later hanging out with him. His abdomen was kind of protruding a bit. And Steve was always a very lean guy without an ounce of extra anything on him. Probably a little bit under 5'10", uh, and uh, probably didn't weigh more than 150. And so it looked like something was kind of pushing out against his t-shirt. And he kind of uh, looked and it couldn't help me noticing. And he, he said, I uh, said, I've been trying to keep it quiet. It's, uh, it's the big C, you know, it's cancer. Here's Allie and Barbara. 50 years old, it was way too early for this story to happen. And yet he'd been exposed to asbestos, which is, I gather, what was the specific root of that cancer. He was in the Marines, and he was cleaning up the... Um, of course, he went and chased some girl, and he got in trouble. And they made him clean out the hulls of these ships, and they had asbestos. That's where he breathed in the asbestos, and asbestos takes... Mesothelioma takes probably usually 20-some years to get into your body and get going. Here's Steve's close friend and racing buddy, Bud Eakins. He got very, very close with people, like he was trying to make amends for uh, his past life and, and trying to make up for everything uh, to clear his way, you know, to God. Steve also made a phone call to his wife, Neil, for the many indiscretions he committed during their marriage. On November 3rd, 1980, as McQueen's visit with the Reverend Billy Graham was wrapping up, 
Steve turned to his new friend and called out, I'll see you in heaven. Four days later, Steve McQueen was dead. Right then, right here, the King of Cool made the ultimate great escape to his forever home with his forever father, the King of Kings. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And that's a heck of a story. And I think I know a lot about acting and actors, but my goodness, Greg, great job on that. And, you know, you heard that great line from The Son, and The Son had said that, you know, the guy, the guy who he loved, his father, had experienced this stardom, but that there had to be more in life. There had to be something more than scripts and fame. And by the way, we, we hit that so many times. And unlike so many other stars who end up killing themselves, McQueen did something different. He went and searched for some kind of deeper meaning in his life, and he sought out other sources of meaning and other friendships. And you won't hear this kind of story anywhere else, but here on Our American Stories, we pull no punches. We take the stories where they go, and this one ended beautifully. Steve McQueen's life story here on Our American Stories. And you can hear all that we do. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And we go out, as we started this segment, with a sound from the Magnificent Seven. And watch Steve McQueen's acting, particularly in the Thomas Crown Affair. It may be as good a piece of acting as you've ever seen, and the same with Sand Pebbles. Steve McQueen's story here on Our American Story. (laughs) 